You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book called Auction Ready, How to Buy Property at Auction Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp and we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. Today, we're looking to the future. We're going to explore the possibilities of change that a global pandemic can create. Was our pre-COVID life really as good as we thought it was? Do we really want this to end so we can get back to normal or do we want a new normal? Are we taking stock? Are we reassessing our values and changing our priorities? But before we look ahead to how our lives might be different in the wake of lockdown, perhaps we need to look backwards to see whether there were already rumblings of new ways of being. And bringing it back to the point of this podcast, how will new ways of being impact on where we live, who we live with and what we live in? In this episode, we pick the brains of business futurist and innovation expert, Craig Rispin. Craig's expertise is in emerging business, people and technology trends, and we're very excited to be able to get a glimpse into the world as he is seeing it. Welcome, Craig. Thanks for coming along. Oh, I'm so excited. I just want to help and be a message of hope. There is hope. The future is going to be better. (laughs) <laughs> Fantastic. It's, it's funny you say that, Craig, because you've kind of taken the words out of my mouth for the first question. And um, <laughs> one of the things is that um, crises, um, or crises um, are a time when innovation kind of, you know, thrives. And are you saying that innovation coming out of COVID already? Yes, yes. Incredible innovations and some big companies really helping. And we'll talk about that as well. And the past, yes, there were warnings. And I can tell you about that if you want as well. Well, let's start with that then. Okay. So uh, I've got a fellow futurist friend. You may know of him. His name is Nissim Taleb. He wrote the famous book, The Black Swan. And The Black Swan was written in 2006, published in early 2007. And it predicted the GFC and predicted uh, the pandemic that we're in right now. And someone you probably know very well by the name of Bill Gates read it, recommended it on his reading list, became an advocate for preparing, gave this big speech in 2015 about we need to be preparing. Still, people didn't listen and look at where we are now. I think they're going to be listening more carefully in the future. What do you think? Yes, well, two strikes. They got two two right. That sounds that's a pretty good strike, right? Yeah, yeah. And when I read that book, The Black Swan, I'm like, hmm, yeah, maybe I need to get all, all my shares out of the market. <laughs> and I did, did luckily. Right. Yeah, I dodged that, but I'll tell you about my Dumbo later. <laughs> <laughs> and so what else? What's next? <laughs> well, good things happening. So because we are changing the environment and we're changing the business economy 
and we're changing the technology. And so what's happening in the future? Well, right now, before we were all concentrating on the uh, pandemic, we're already in the midst of shifting into a brand new economy, the fourth Mm. industrial revolution that I'm sure your listeners, oh yeah, I know about that. Do they know that it's the intersection of the digital, the biological, and the physical worlds like real estate? Do they uh, follow that very much? And when I go out and talk to various industry groups, and I speak in about 50 different industries, they're like, oh, yeah, we've heard of that. I go, well, but do you know about this? And they Mm -hmm. say, well, what do you mean? And I say, well, what about the intersection of technology and biology for data storage? And they say, what do you mean, the intersection of biology and technology? I said, well, look at your little fingernail. Just look at your little fingernail. That The average size of your little fingernail, we could, using technology and genetics, uh, we've already designed, we meaning scientists around the world, have designed a storage medium that's about the size of your little fingernail that can store, get this, one billion terabyte drives in that surface area. So you think of... Yeah, that's a lot of storage. And guess who's invested in this company? Every big company you can imagine, Fogam. So that's Facebook, that's Apple, that's Google, that's Amazon, that's Microsoft, and Alibaba. I guess I have to put another A on the end. (laughs) Have all (laughs) invested in this because they've got these huge data storage, commercial real estate buildings, right? They're data storage buildings, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, imagine replacing a bunch of those with tiny little areas, you know, that you've got, you can just stick them in the basement and still have massive storage. And so, yes, all these companies are invested in it. And the first thing that they're doing, I'm not making this up, they're taking all the movies from Hollywood because they want to store them for a thousand years. They can store them in DNA. It's DNA storage. It's just mind blowing. When I show people that, they're like, that's already happening? That's a thing. And wow. I said, yes, yes, yes. Go look up Twist Biosciences. Who's Twist? I go, it's the company that Fogam's invested in. And sure. yes, they're a listed organization. And if you invested in them, you would have been doing pretty well because I know I've got shares in them. So full disclosure, they're an amazing company. And wow. Are they related to the kind of Internet of Things, you know, I guess lots of different devices connected all over the world, everything from your toaster to your car, et cetera, or is this – more around sort of kind of humans being able to almost be computers sort of thing. Well, listen, IoT is one of the drivers of the fourth industrial revolution as well. If you listen to McKinsey at all, McKinsey says that IoT is going to be about, oh, by 2020, uh, sorry, 2030, they say, not 2025, 2030, they say it's going to be $6.2 trillion worth of value. And I hate the name, the Internet of Things. I love what GE calls it and is a better name, the Internet of Everything. The Internet of Everything, because everything's going to be connected to the Internet. And I think that's a much better name. But that's a subgroup. That's why we're moving to 5G, by the way. They should be closely related because 5G was made specifically to support IoT, not just so you can download, you know, the entire seasons of The Crown very quickly on your phone. No, 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 no. It's not for that. It's to support one single tower, 5G tower, can store, uh, can connect and, and transfer the data 
up to uh, 1 million devices, 1 million devices for a single tower. That gives you an idea. And these towers are crashing in price. And if you think that this COVID has slowed down the investment, it hasn't because it only takes two network engineers now and they can do social distancing. So they're still going out. And to give you an idea, by 2030, according to the World Economic Forum, not just me, the World Economic Forum and the Peak Industry Group, which is called the GSMA, they, they think that about $12 trillion, that's $12 trillion worth of value. And how is this related to property? Well, there's one listed organization, uh, so they're called uh, American Tower. And American Tower invests in commercial real estate where these towers are. And they say, mm-hmm. we've got this tower. You can rent it and put your, put your uh, antennas on it if you want. And they're doing incredibly well. They're doing, uh, yeah, their ticker's uh, AMT, AMT. They're doing pretty well right now, yeah. Because, yeah, it's not stopping. It's not stopping. It's a pretty cheap type of property to own, though, a tower. Like, I mean, you look at the Eiffel Tower in Paris, for instance, you know, you could just make it out of some metal. You don't have to fit it out. You just got to make it tall, right? So, yeah, but also yeah. all, the, all the commercial space that is previously needed or currently needed, all those ocean, those big cargo ships are floating around the sea, apparently, you know, <laughs> storing um, uh, information. So you're saying basically that that type of real estate is going to not be needed. No, it's going to be needed. It's going to be needed. But the, the, the good news is for 5G is uh, that you're going to need many more towers, even though we're going to need less because we can, we're going to need many more towers because they're shorter range. So we're going to have them inside shopping malls if we ever have shopping malls in the future. That's a big question. <laughs> uh, we're going to have them inside stadiums when people go back to stadiums and that sort of thing. So don't worry about it. There's going to be a big market for it. How big? $12 trillion, not according to me, but to a lot of other experts. So it's it, that's just um, – but there's about 35 different drivers, and we've just mentioned a few of the fourth industrial revolution. In the physical world, I uh, advise – the building research associations around the world. So I work with the Australian and New Zealand because I'm based in uh, in Sydney, Australia. And I work with the these research organizations looking at what the future of buildings are. And I can tell you the future of buildings. You've seen these 3D printers that can yeah. print a building in a day, right? Hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's those sort of uh, machines that basically lay bricks Um and, you know, so there goes the bricklayer, you know, a machine just kind of can do it, can work 24-7, doesn't ask for kind of holidays, et cetera, right? So, um, but then Works I guess the it's buildings yeah. as well, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. But even more important is the Chinese builder who put together this system, who first printed 10 sheds in a weekend, and then he printed a one-story building. And the following year, he printed a three-story villa and a five-story <laughs> apartment building. Each floor just takes a day. And then the, the 3D printer hoists itself up to the next floor and then prints the next floor and then hoists itself up to the next floor. And everybody was looking at that and they're like, okay, what's the material that you use? And the material, get this, he goes to all the building sites around China and goes, give me your building scrap. Give me your trash that goes into landfill. So it's 90% trash that would go into landfill and only 10% cement. So wouldn't you like it if you were building and 90% of your materials were the stuff that are going to go into landfill? 
It's crazy, isn't it? So you've got like A, it's happening a lot faster and then it's obviously potentially even a lot cheaper because of time, but also the materials that they use. Yeah, so all the people, this is the big problem. All the people that were in the room that when I was presenting this research, which is not my research, by the way, it's, uh, re, you know, meta studies and research that I've done with academics and so on and and uh, collected by AI, by, way, by the way. But anyway, when I, the, what's the big problem? They're looking at me and I can see they're just looking like a, a deer in the headlights. They're like, holy cow, this is going to come eat our lunch. We're not going to be able to be builders in the future. And so they just want to hold back the future. They don't want to have a, a bar of it. And they, they go, but Rispin, you don't understand. I go, I think I do. No, you don't understand. I said, I think I do because I have family in the business. And what are you worried about? And they go, well, you know, we get to charge clients a lot of money because it takes a long time and it's complicated. And if it doesn't take a long time and it's not complicated, how can we charge them a lot more money? And I said, hey, you know, there are businesses. Imagine a business comes to you in the future. They're sort of like the Uber of the building industry. And they say, we can print your house in a day. Just choose a design here on our iPad. And we'll just hit the button and you'll have it tomorrow. Would you pay a premium for that? Of course mm. you would. Of course you would. Of course you would, but who's going to do it first? Well, it's interesting. There's, it makes a lot of sense to do things like modular homes and build them off site, et cetera, but trying to create, you know, move an industry up to the current times when they've been building it a certain way for a long, long time. It's very difficult for people to kind of change their perspective, I guess, isn't it? Yes, and they're, go they're going to have to because it, I can go to these leaders and say to them, hey, just think about the last 30 years. Think about the last 30 years, the incredible changes that we've seen in our lives. And since most of these leaders are 50-plus-year-olds, and I'm one of those as well, they remember 30 years ago and they remember and then they look back and they go, holy cow, where we've come from, right? And they're like, oh, the incredible changes that we've seen. I go, well, take that and make it at least 100 times faster and bigger for the fourth industrial revolution. They go, that's not possible. And I go, oh, well, look at this chart, look at this chart, look at this chart. And the one chart that I show them is uh, Moore's Law. Moore's Law is this exponential curve that we've been on oh, that's yeah. been driving. Yeah, okay. Mm. Well, if you put that on a logarithmic chart, you can say that a computer that costs $10 million in 2001, it uh, it was just $10,000. So from $10 million to $10,000 to 2019. In that same time frame, what cost $10 million in gene sequencing, like the storage that we were talking about, where you use genetics to do the data storage, that's crashed from $10 million down to 10 cents. Mm. And that's what's driving it's the when you when you intersect you crash together it's the fusion of technology and the biological and the physical world so it's not just 3d printers there's new materials like bricks made out of fungus mycelium is a new material so that's in the physical world yeah 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 mycelium is a fungus it's you know the roots of basically a mushroom and it's fire retardant. But here's the cool thing. You can just build a frame and you can grow your house. So you just come back and there's your house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's very safe, flame retardant, flexible, earthquake proof as well. And uh, afterwards, you can just melt it down, basically. You can spray it with some other materials. So, it, you know, it just it goes away into the environment. It's biological. It's sort of fascinating. Well, it is fascinating. Of course, it's fascinating. But um, 
here we are. We've got governments that struggle with change, you know, mainly because no they want to try and get voted in. Um, but it, but out there you've actually got entrepreneurs and inventors and, and some serious money going into this sort of technology and exploration. Um, how is it, uh, you know, my mind's boggled really, it's in terms of how it's, how it's um, developed, sustained, financed, um, it all seems to happen irrespective of what, you know, the political landscape is doing. You know, it's quite fascinating even from that perspective that this is like a whole world order that's happening regardless of what's happening on the surface. Yes, and in fact, I work with many entrepreneurs who for years were thinking about what do we need from the government and then they figured out it didn't matter which government was in, they weren't doing anything for them. So they've decided, you know, let's just ignore them and move ahead. Mm. And uh, yeah, I worked with one group uh, that baby, basically a, a, a secret group in Adelaide, a secret, you know, star chamber of business owners who basically said the government in Adelaide is useless. So let's ignore them and let's move ahead. And they made a huge difference <laughs> to the business community, to the retail uh, area, to the festivals business, by the way, to sport and to real estate uh, in spite of the government, I have to say. So they just basically didn't engage with them. And, and guess what happened? Things happened. <laughs> so. so, Craig, I think um, obviously COVID and corona has kind of changed, uh, you know, forced companies to innovate in terms of changing the way that they do, you know, their work policies around um, you have to come to the office nine to five or you have to work from home, et cetera. You've obviously looked at remote work and oh, the yeah. future of working from home. Um, how much do you think that kind of corona has brought that forward and, you know, will this change be permanent or do you see us all kind of going back to the office nine to five? We are never going back. We are never going back. We have a new normal and we see it every day. Every single day I see another announcement because I have an alert on companies announcing in their earning reports that are publicly listed uh, remote work and the word permanent. So remote work and permanent. You get those words together, the number of announcements just in this earnings um, season that we're having right now, it's earnings seasons, all these publicly listed companies announcing what they're doing, the occurrence of the words remote work and, and so just in the last quarter, the number of publicly listed companies saying the, the three words remote work and permanent 1,185 times. That's 1,185 different publicly listed companies who have mentioned that. And so are we going back? No, but are we, will we ever go back to the office? Yes. So the most likely scenario that I'm discussing with my colleagues, 20,000 futurists in the World Future Society. So we're discussing what's the most likely scenario for the future. And we say it's three places. So you've got the office that you go to because you have to, because there's a meeting, but how many days a week do you go to that? Mm, Debatable, depends on what industry you're in, what your job is. What maybe even what division you're in. And the second place is your remote office, your home office, right? And the third place is a third place. So it's like a WeWork or shared office space. Yeah. And so the most likely scenarios in the future, you'll have these three places that you'll be going to. So that's really going to impact the commercial property world. And how much? Well, the latest statistics are about 30% 
about 30% of office space won't be needed going forward. Uh, if you just look at publicly listed companies, it's hard to say for privately listed because you know they're not reporting these things, but publicly listed companies, and just look what happened with Facebook. Facebook sent everybody home and they're like, holy cow, people are more productive. <laughs> well, not everyone, but most people were. They're like, holy cow, we're more productive. We were, we were really against this remote work thing. And then we figured it out, hey, people are more productive. Wow, surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> and then they, what do they do? They call their property developer and they say, hey, you know, the multi-billion yeah. dollar headquarters we're building, just mm. cut back the floor space 29%, please. So, so how about that for foresight for my community? They said about 30%. Facebook con uh, confirmed it. You know, it's Twitter, it's Square, it's one company after another just announcing, hey, you know this remote work thing? We think it's pretty good. And we're going to be doing it permanently from now on. So and do you think it'll go remote work in terms of, uh, you know, there's work from home. Like I, I work from home three days a week. I go to the city two days a week, let's say. Yeah, you're but already there. Yeah. Through remote work, I think, is I live anywhere in the world and I don't go to the office at all. Or we need a, you know, a futurist in the in the business and the best futurist in the world is actually in San Francisco. So we'll hire them. So you can hire globally um, and you can live globally and work for a company anywhere in the world. Do you yes. think that that's still some far, like still far-fetched? Sort of no, 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 no. So there's a whole community that, like myself, for the last 20 years, and there's a huge community of remote workers like myself. I run a remote company, so I can mostly work anywhere in the world or hop on a plane to fly somewhere to deliver a presentation or do strategic planning for a weekend with a company. We and uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And listen, <laughs> listen. These companies are multi-billion dollar companies that you know about. And I've been doing a whole bunch of presentations to companies that what are these companies that are remote only know that you don't know that you have been forced into being remote. And they know a lot of things that normal companies don't know. And you've picked up on one of them that you can recruit from anywhere. That is a huge difference. Yeah. That means you've got this global talent pool, not just can I get somebody in San Francisco? And it's yep. hard to get developers in San Francisco, for instance, but it's easier in, you know, in Israel, let's say, right now. Yep. So, so what's so, the downside of it, though? Well, you know, it's how, a how downside. downside it's a property issue. It's a property issue. Is it only property? Not, well, it, property is part of it. Human connection and belonging and um, establishing your networks and understand. I mean, I've got a friend of mine who's, who's actually started quite a senior senior role with a big company in in Australia, in the middle of COVID uh, lockdown, and you know, so she's a general manager, she's got quite a lot of staff, and and the onboarding process for someone at that level has been really quite challenging and difficult um, because there's absolutely been no face to face um, contact other than via Zoom. Yeah. So uh, that I mean that the it sort of has to coexist, doesn't it? I mean, I think pure remote working sort of it flies in the face of the fact we do need to connect and network and different personality types also require different types of interaction, right? Well, you would think that if you've never worked for a remote-only company. Have you worked mm -hmm. for a remote-only company? No, of course I haven't, but um, okay. I'm curious as to if there's a downside because of that. Well, I have to tell you, some of these remote companies that I work with who are, by the way, multi-billion dollar organizations, 
So it must work, or if it didn't work, they wouldn't be multi-billion dollar organization. Yeah. They have incredible culture. In fact, their culture, yeah. I would say, is better than a lot of, you know, what I say, you know, legacy companies, mm. because they're d- definitely, they're showing us the future. And there's some guides out there, and I just want to point the listeners to some great guides, because these companies that are remote only, they've been sharing all of their learnings. This is what we learned over the last 20 years. Like, here's how you create a great culture. And I'll give you just one example, how how remote only companies, not only do they use different technology, but they use it differently. So they were all using Zoom before we were using Zoom, I have to tell you. I started using it back in 2011 because I saw my remote only companies using it, but they were using yeah. it in a different way. So, you know, in Zoom, you can have this gallery view where you see a lot of people like, you know, Brady Bunch style where you got everybody on screen. And so I went to visit this HR person that was booking me for this event. And, and she had this screen up with, and I said, oh, are we meeting with all these people? She said, no, that's our hallway. I said, what? They go, oh, well, this is what we do. We just leave Zoom running all day long. Do you yeah. Zoom running all day long? Oh. Yeah, I was reading about this, the company's doing, I think it's amazing. And I, and I agree with what you're saying is that, you know, a lot of these tech companies, they have a kind of open source, let's share best practice sort of philosophy. Yeah, and, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I point you to these companies who share this and they go, this is, this is the technology that we use and this mm-hmm. is how we use it differently from you. And so there's one company that is a is valued at more than a billion dollars, a little company called Zapier. Zapier makes oh, yeah. connections between web services. Yeah. And they've got a remote working guide that's 178 pages. And no, you don't have to read the whole thing, but every chapter is useful. And say, for instance, you don't know how to recruit, recruit remote workers because there's a different way to recruit remote workers than it is through a, a job board where it says okay what city do you are you living in mm-hmm. you know obviously the the job boards don't really uh, handle that very well and mm-hmm. so that there are remote only recruiting websites that you go to mm-hmm. that you, yeah that you you recruit so that gives gives you a, a feeling but there's so many guides out there and and there's one particular uh, resource I want to give all of your listeners right now in this time of crisis, because yes, I sound optimistic because I can see what's happening and also the intersection of technology and and biology and the physical world's going to solve this corona crisis faster than ever before. I'm good, I can tell you, I can see what's happening now. With uh, We just need more and more uh, clinical trials and human trials, and there are more trials and human trials coming for this than ever before in human history. And it's all because we've got this technology. So back when AIDS hit, it took us two years, two years to isolate what it was. We didn't even know what it was. It took us three years to find a treatment, just any kind of treatment. It wasn't even a cure. And do you know, we just cured the second person on earth, it looks like, just finally now? That was the 1980s, right? Oh, oh, incredible that it took that long. But now what happened? Well, even in spite of China saying, no, this isn't what you think it is. It's not something new. It's not a novel coronavirus. In spite of that, in five days, we isolated. In three days, it was up on Amazon Web Services and 350 organizations that were looking for treatments all downloaded it within three days and started on solutions. This is incredible time. Yes, it's the worst 
time in human history, and, and we're more prepared for dealing with it than ever before. We should have been better prepared, but we're more prepared to fix it than ever before. And this is the, the great news. And this means that things are going to change. And I just want to give you a, a future scenario of what's going to happen in the future. So if we need, let's say, on average, 30% commercial real estate, well, what does that mean if you're remote only? Mm. That means you can work from anywhere. So where are you going to live? And, you know, Facebook has already discussed this. They said, okay, everyone, you can work from home for the next 12 months. At the end of 12 months, we're going to reevaluate where you're living. And if you're in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the cost of living is 35% less, we're going to adjust how much we pay you. Because obviously, you have to get paid more to live in San Francisco. I don't know if you've seen San Francisco rates, but they're yeah, insane, yeah. insane. Yeah, they're, they're kind of like Sydney and Melbourne. But anyway, yes, insanely expensive. And so, yeah, look at that. And that's what companies do. They, op- they optimize for costs. And so if, they're, if your employees can cost you less, and that's one of the other benefits is you can pay people less because their living costs are less. Yeah, but you see where that's going, don't you? I mean, obviously, um, that then changes the the rate of pay from what the output is or what that person is doing or what the value of the individual is, is to, you know, a, a rate that's indexed by where they live. And then obviously, the inf- the um, big organisations are going to start looking for, for staff that live in cheap areas. Yeah, and that's a good thing. And I have to tell you, this is a good, this is a message of hope. It's not a problem. Because I've been an executive, well, I gave it up 20 years ago, but I was a global executive. And we had this indexing for our packages as you move from place to place. They say you're in London, London, so there's this uh, consulting firm called Hewitt and Mercer, and there's there's several. And all they do is negotiate uh, executive packages. What does that mean? That if you move to an area that costs more, you get paid more. It only makes sense because your costs are more. And so there are firms, and this is the good news. It used to be just for senior executives, VPs and above, right? And now every employee is going to get that opportunity to get paid more because your living expenses are more in San Francisco and get paid less because you want to be in Tulsa. And I guess it comes down to whether you've got an abundance or a scarcity mindset. So, you know, I guess one side of the coin, you could look at this and say, wow, if, if I'm not good at my job, I'm, I live in an expensive country. I'm expensive to companies. Um, and, and I'm not doing a great job. Well, I need to be fearful of people living all over the world in cheaper countries that can do a better job than me because in a remote world, you know, they're more likely to get hired because they're cheaper and better. Um, and so the job market is potentially going to be destabilized long-term by people who aren't great or aren't working on themselves and educating. Um, and then you've got technology replacing jobs as well. I mean, you know, there's been lots of reports that saying, you know, 40, 50% of jobs are going to be gone for, due to technology in the next, you know, 10, 20 years, let's say, Craig, you know. Yes, yes, yes. When people worry about technology taking their jobs, what's your thoughts on that? Okay. We, before we do that, can we just go back for a sec? Because where I was going with those questions was that one of the reasons that, say, inner Sydney and inner Melbourne are really strong, stable areas within which to invest and also in terms of living, um, the property is more expensive than the rest of the country is because it attracts, you know, the the, no, they're the knowledge centre, right? They attracts that sort of that highly skilled um, yes. worker, right? So. Yes. What I'm seeing from what you're saying is that this could could have a fun or could lead to a fundamental shift in the in the structure around how location 
and property prices are linked. Yes, definitely. It's already starting to happen. Well, we, we're going to see a shift because of the pandemic, but will it come back? We're not quite certain. And I can tell you a big difference because um, I have an inside source. My sister works for a little company called Officeworks in Australia. And, uh, and I'll tell you how their business has shifted. They've had some boom days, boom days, yeah. Yeah. right? And why? But their business model has completely changed. It used to be, I'm a big company. I got a thousand employees. Send us a thousand stand-up desks dual screen monitors, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. and send it to these five locations. Now what they're saying is, I've got 3,000 workers, send the, that new MacBook and the new iPad and the new phone and the stand-up desk and the dual screen to 3,000 people's homes all over the mm-hmm. country. Yeah. And what I, what I think is that this is great news for country areas because I think that um, areas that are outside the city, which are a bit of a longer commute, let's say yeah. Wollongong for Sydney or up to Newcastle or wherever it might be, or you're in San Francisco and you're on the other side of the bay and you're like, oh, I hate commuting in every day. Well, you don't, right? You commute in one day or two days and the rest of the days you stay somewhere else that's a bit of a longer commute, but you're not doing it every day, so it's not grinding you. And yeah. so you're like, okay, well, then I can live in, fill in the blank, because I only have to commute in once a week or once every two weeks or whatever. So I think this is great news for regional areas, just like we've seen this boom in regional tourism just recently after, you know, so we got some freedom and everybody's like, I'm going to go spend some money in the regions. I'm not going to get on a plane. I think that people are going to go, hey, you know what? I don't have to go in the office anymore. How about we live here? I think that's, yeah, very true. And I think uh, especially if it's still commutable, you know, one, two days a week, I think once you you start going – you know, three, four, five hours away and you start to get away from being commutable, I guess it's you need the employers to really advance to that remote working um, paradigm. And I guess it's how long do employers really get to that? Um, we don't really care where you work, in, where you live in Australia. Um, you don't even need to ever come to the office. And I just don't know whether this will get us there in this sort of transition or do you think that's wrong? Listen, we're already there. The, there's a great futurist who had had this great phrase, William Gibson, uh, science fiction writer, extraordinaire, and coined the term uh, the, the cyberspace around the, where we're going to be going with virtual reality in the future. And what did he say? He said that the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And I have to tell you, these remote-only companies they are multi-billion dollar companies. I've just, uh, there's another one, you know, Atlassian, they're doing the same thing. They make tools, yeah. multi-billion dollar listed company, one of our success stories in Australia. And what do they do? They make tools for remote companies. That's, and how about yeah. Slack? Slack went from being valued at $0 to $1 billion in 15 months. It was the fastest growing enterprise software in the history of the world, faster than Microsoft Office, faster than Salesforce, and it's why Microsoft had to respond with, the, with, their, with their tools because Slack was changing everyone. Every single remote company I know runs their entire communications channels in Slack. They hate Outlook with a passion. <laughs> and do you see, um, obviously if you have to drive to the city, um, it's a bit of a pain, you know, battle the traffic, it's unproductive time. But do you see the future of autonomous cars 
you know, closer than people think um, because it's kind of gone off the front pages now. It was all like the rage a couple of years ago and, you know, we're going to be all in driverless cars by 2030, et cetera. But how, how soon do you think till we actually are not driving anymore? Well, I've been in self-driving cars driving around Las Vegas just last year. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there was there were taxis and there were no drivers. And yes, they were on a, a particular circuit. They weren't going all around Las Vegas. But I have to tell you, it's like getting a microwave. Remember the first time you had a microwave? You're like, oh, I got this microwave. I'm never going back. <laughs> and when you get into a driverless taxi and you and what they do is they install these screens and so yeah. you can see what the what the taxi can see, and it can see all around itself, 360. And you're like, oh, it's actually driving better than I would drive. Like, <laughs> and and so is it, it's already here. It's just not evenly yeah. distributed. But I think we're going to see self flying taxis before we see self driving cars. And the right. reason for that is, well. I think it's going to be easier because we have 3D space. Why is everybody on 2D roads when we're living in 3D buildings? That's what Elon Musk says. That's crazy. I'm going to go under the ground. But I think we're going to go through the air. And this is already happening in New Zealand. So so Larry Page, the co-founder of Google, funded Sebastian Thrum. Sebastian is the guy who created the Google self-driving car. And now he's creating Larry Page self-flying um, vertical takeoff and landing plane. Mm. It's a plane with all these little propellers on the wings and it takes off vertically, flies to where you need to go, lands safely, and then it flies off and takes somebody else. And they're going to be, uh, they've got a license. They're going to be doing, uh, te- they're doing test flights now. They're going to be flying live customers this year in 2020 oh, wow. in New Zealand. Yeah. <laughs> So it's kind of like the Uber Air, but uh, not Uber. I mean, yeah, Uber well, Air. Yeah, and Air's Uber's got a multi-billion dollar business around this. They're, they're, it's called uh, Uber Elevate, and they're working with companies like Bell, used to be Bell Helicopter, and they showed off their their system last uh, two years ago. So this is all happening. This is, a, this is inevitable, inevitable that this is going to happen. What do you think about the effects on retail? Obviously, retail's uh, <sighs> no longer going to stores, but yeah. you know, online shopping's kind of been a bit. You know, we've we've kind of maybe uh, you know dabbled with you know buying um, things on Amazon and things like that, but we haven't you know until COVID really shifted buying everything like groceries and it's everything. Another example. Like it just accelerated the future. You know, total of uh, online shopping before the the COVID crisis was only on average globally yeah. about 12% of all retail sales. Yeah. And now we think it's about 35% of all retail sales. Yeah. And why isn't it 100%? Because there are some things that you just can't get online shopping. But mm. uh, but it, it's accelerated. It jumped just in the last quarter from 12% to about 35% globally. And it's just accelerating. And uh, I think that many people here in Australia still go and get their groceries. Yeah. But, but in California, where my family is, they don't get groceries. They get, just get delivered to their door. <laughs> they never go. They never go to the grocery store anymore. They just don't. And do you actually think we'll do Zoom sort of video recordings or do you think we will 
kind of innovate and go further than that. Maybe it's virtual reality meetings and things like that. Do you, you know, because I think a lot of one of the negatives are people get a lot very tired on Zoom all day. Yeah, um, yeah. Think, it's yeah, screen fatigue, okay? yes. And so this is what I think, and I've already seen this. So another example of the future not being evenly distributed. In Singapore, when uh, families have major events like major birthdays or anniversaries, and they've got uh, relatives all around the world, they do a really interesting thing. They push the dinner table up against the wall, put a projector on the dinner table and project onto the wall the other half of the dinner table in China or Malaysia or whatever, right? Now imagine that there are these projectors and you can buy them now and they're short throw projectors. So you just put it up against the wall and it projects this huge 150 inch image. And because it is reflective, it's, you know, it's signed onto the wall rather than into your eye that a screen does, which is direct light into your eye, it's less fatiguing. And I think what you're going to see is that people are going to take a room in their house, their bedroom, they're going to have a one of these video walls, and that's going to be all their coworkers. And when you walk in, it's going to be a full-length camera, or you're going to sit down at your desk and turn around, and they're going to be your workers. And I think I think that's what we're going to see. You know, we've seen it. I know you've seen this in science fiction with these video walls, but I don't think they're going to be LED. I can think they're going to be these projectors because they're crashing in price. You can get one of these short throw projectors now for under fifteen hundred dollars. They'll be under a thousand dollars next year. They'll be under five hundred dollars after that. And people are going to go, hey, you know that projector? That's much easier on my eyes. I think I'll just project my entire laptop screen, my Zoom conference on that wall. I just no, want. I- yeah. Are we using a lot more power and obviously the internet? Are we, you know, in terms of an infrastructure uh, point of view, are we ready for this? No, the infrastructure isn't, but don't worry about that because the infrastructure is irrelevant. So we have not invested in the power distribution that we need. And, and you, pr- you probably realize this because we're getting power outages mm. in cities all around the globe. And the, the future, I know, because I work with energy companies, and those energy companies who have figured out that their business models actually take their customers off the grid, <laughs> off the grid. So I work with a power company, uh, Horizon Power, out in Western Australia, and they've actually accelerated this. They're a, you know, a semi-government organization, partially governmental run, you know, a commission, And their charter is to help everyone in the regional areas, not the major cities in Western Australia. And so they've got these runs where they have to run this power cable, you know, 58 kilometers out to one of their customers. And they're like, you know, it costs us $8 million every five years just to service that. How about if we take you off the grid, we give you solar panels, we give you a battery backup and a diesel, diesel generator just in case those batteries go down. And guess what? They've never run the diesel generator. So they've just, <laughs> and this is a major company, this is a major um, power company that they've just taken off the grid entirely. And they've done this 45 times. Last time I checked in with them, 45 times they've taken their customers off the grid. So I think what we're going to see, the biggest, their future, I did some scenario planning with them, they believed is what we call community grid. So in your local neighborhood, every maybe only every every other house is good for solar, but you sell yeah. the extra solar that you've got to your neighbor, next door neighbor. You basically connect up on the mm. grid. 
And if we had every other house in Australia that had solar panels and we had batteries in our garage and we had electric cars on our driveway, to give you an idea, the projection from BHP, who says we got to get out of coal, but we'll stay in nickel and copper because those are needed for batteries. And so we're getting Mm -hmm. out of coal entirely because electric cars have grown faster than we ever predicted. So we're getting out of coal. Why? Because we see that there's no future in it because we're not going to have any more coal of uh, power plants because we're going to have community grids. And what was a projection? This was last year in their corporate earnings that by 2029, 2030, that the payback, your return on investment, that if you put solar panels on your roof, you put a battery in your garage and put an electric car on your driveway, the return on investment, 11 months. Hmm. 11 months. And it takes big business to come up with this stuff rather than our governments. Isn't that interesting? Well, you know, they're fighting against it. They're trying to hold back Mm. the future, aren't they? They're just idiots. They just don't They want to get voted in in North Queensland and places where there's heavy reliance on coal. Yeah, but here's the good news. In Australia, our power has gone down to below zero. Why has our power cost gone below zero? It's because the amount of solar that we have in this country is staggering. And it's, the, and it's going to be true for America soon. It's going to be true for Germany soon. And this is inevitable. But why are our power bills more expensive than ever? And I have to tell you, it's because the energy companies have figured out we got to charge our customers as much as possible. But soon they're going to figure out they don't need us. <laughs> it's funny. I did, that, I, I did a quote on my house for some solar just last week, actually. And uh, because of the government rebates, and you know, there's lots of the cost of solar, and you know, there's different qualities of panels and different countries, etc. But you know, for a reasonably decent one, it was only going to cost about four thousand dollars, and that would basically save me two grand a year in you know electricity. So you know, it's like after a couple of years, you're kind of already breaking even. I think that's obviously come down a lot over the years. Um, well, how would you like a free electric car? I mean, when they say return on investment, that means that you have completely paid off the panels, the battery, and the car. Mm. And how do you do that? By connecting to your neighbors. They've got a lot of trees next to them and say, hey, yeah. I'll just I'll become my own power company. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, Tesla was talking about something like that, right? You you kind of yes. lease the car and you, you lease it back to the to become a taxi. To the grid, yes. Classic. It's a, it's a vehicle-to-grid solution, vehicle-to-grid to solution. So these are all, you know, really big, exciting things to be discussing and understanding. That as you say, they're already happening. What, they are. Sort of on a, on a sort of a, a um, any more an individual level, are there changing values and priorities that are helping feed into this but also oh, yes. that are being brought to the fore through this lockdown period and coronavirus? Yes. So I've been talking about this for 20 years. Have you have you felt this, that there's sort of a shift in hmm. the way that people are valuing the role of work in their lives? Not yeah. just that, but, the, you know, connections and um, the families and the, the space in which they live and, um, you know, what they spend their money on. There's a whole, there's a, a, there's a shift on many levels. But, yes, definitely feeling A total that. shift, a big mm. shift, yes. It's really difficult for me and my family, for instance, to buy my adult children uh, gifts. I can't buy them things anymore. They're like, Dad, we don't need things. We don't have things. I don't want things. 
right? Mm -hmm. We want to create memories. Don't buy me things. And I'm like, wow, your values are completely different from me. I was a child of the 1980s. You know, greed is good. And we had a lot of things, I have to say. And I don't have a lot of things to show for that, those things that we bought. And uh, their values have completely changed. They're, they're, yeah. it's, and it's a good thing. It is a good thing because we needed to change our values. We really did. We, we, we didn't need to live in this consumer uh, world that was driven by stuff. And people are figuring that out. But, you know, I want to go back to the question that you asked, because everybody asked me about this. They go, hey, you know, all this AI stuff, Rispin, it's going to replace me. I go, no, it's not going to replace you. It's going to replace jobs. And what kind of jobs are you going to replace? The ones that you want to get out of. Mm -hmm. So what? And so this is what I say to everyone. It's a message of hope, and it's true. The only reason that I get the kind of clients that I get is because I'm Craig Rispin, powered by AI. I'm a futurist plus AI. I have an AI tool called Athena, and I can ask it, what's the future of fish markets so I can work with the Sydney fish markets or the Sydney cricket grounds or Sydney airport? What's the future of airports? And it's that AI tool that makes me a superhuman futurist. And so jobs are not going to go away. They're not going to be replaced by AI. Those jobs are going to be replaced by jobs plus AI. So I'll give you one example. These remote companies have figured out that they can do all their sales calls on Zoom. They can build a, a billion-dollar company, a billion-dollar yeah. company, just by mm -hmm. making Zoom phone calls. How do you do that? Well, what they do is they plug in a little thing called Chorus.ai. It records your Zoom calls and gives you instant AI coaching afterwards. Hey, Rispin, you stumbled a little bit with that answer that you gave. Um, here's, here's Sally. She did it much better, and her close rate's a little bit better than yours. Would you like to see that? And it completely changes your sales culture. So think about your job right now, any job, and say, if I added AI, could I become a superheroine, superhero? Could I have, you know, Jarvis in my head and make, you know, like Iron Man had and make myself, you know, that much smarter? And I have to tell you, a lot of people have already figured this out. I'm not the only one. There are doctors plus AI. There are lawyers plus AI. There are accountants plus AI. There are journalists plus AI. There are property investors plus AI. There are investors online uh, doing really well with AI. And so I have to say, this is my message of hope for the future. There are incredible opportunities, and right now is a crisis, and it's the best time to reinvent yourself, reinvent your business, reinvent your industry, reinvent your country. I guess the, the, the worry is that, you know, you, you leave it too late. And I think that's where, you know, your, your kind of call to action is, you know, so you're so important because, you know, if, if you kind of wait for five or 10 years time and go, actually, wow, you know, there's no pay rises and I've just been made redundant. And I need to reskill, you know, you've kind of, you know, let the years go by. And I think that you've kind of always be thinking about what's potentially going to change and how you're going to evolve, I guess. Yeah. It's perfect, though, that call to action is perfect to lead into the Dumbo. Have you got one for us? Yes, I do. So I read The Black Swan, and I read about how the equitization of mortgages, I guess we called it at the time, uh, was going to lead to this incredible crisis that it wasn't inevitable. It was like a train you know, rolling into a wall. It was going to happen. And I thought to myself, I got to get out of all of my shares but I didn't think I got to get out of property. And so, yes, 
I closed on a property two weeks <laughs> before Lehman Brothers collapsed. In America? <laughs> yeah, in California. And oh, it took, what, 11 years to come back? Oh, boy. <laughs> Ouch. And so do you still own that property? No, it's long gone. And I'm never doing that again, I have to tell you. And when did you get out of it? After 11 years? 11 or years. 11 years. I wasn't going to sell it at a loss. So I just hung on to it and rented it. And, and when it came back, I finally got rid of it. Right. It's interesting. There's loss wow. aversion and disposition I was in the same situation of everybody else, you know, buying yeah. a property that was $1.3 million. And all of a sudden, two weeks later, your property was worth point three million mm. like like it wiped a million off yeah wow. yeah ouch well it's been a good decision to hold it then because it's then now gone up four times let's say over that 10 years um so it must have been a, a reasonably good asset because it's at least it's come back a lot of properties you know in those situations haven't come back um so in terms of um just future things that no one's really talking about Craig's. I think that's always interesting. You know, a lot of people can get snippets off lots of different areas and their information. But, you know, what are some of the things that you think when you always talk to people, um, they just don't know that this is coming and it always blows their mind? Yeah, the, I'll tell you what they don't know. They don't know that we're already in the midst of it and that you could invest in publicly listed organizations that are multi-billion dollar organizations that are part of this inevitable multi-trillion dollar shift to the future, yeah. right? They're just not doing it. And so when I say to them, hey, I'm just going to check. I just have to make sure that I've got the right number. I'm just looking at my portfolio, which is my fourth industrial uh, revolution portfolio. And this morning it's up. Um, oh, it's down a little bit because our currency went down. So I'm at 119.83%, 1983 per annum for a little investment that I made in uh, 2013 of just under $30,000. This morning is $309,000. And this portfolio is just these companies that most people, when I say, hey, have you heard this little company called American Tower? They go, who's that? Or Twist Biosciences, which is up 124%. Or Next DC, an Aussie success story with, da with uh, data centers. Or a little, a little company called Shopify. <laughs> and they're like, oh, talk about e-commerce and moving to e-commerce. My Shopify investment up 597%. So you're privy to, to pick the, the winners. There must be a lot of other people in the race that don't actually end up winning. No. I mean, there must they, be a lot of people in this race. Or are you saying there's only a very finite am amount of sort of future thinking or, or um, innovative enough organisations that are actually at, the, at this cutting edge? Well, I have to tell you, uh, when I launched a new business just two weeks before, uh, the the shutdown called Explore Future Wealth to educate people in this area specifically. And I thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to have big competitors. These big, uh, you know, uh, companies like, well, Macquarie Bank and others, I must have experts in there that know what yeah. I know. So I went to some of the biggest um, 
uh, investment managers, people that manage huge um, pro- property portfolios and equities portfolios. And I said to them, hey, have a look at this portfolio. Has anybody talked to you about this? And the one person said to us, my business partner, Peter Leggett and myself, he said, I have to tell you guys, nobody is really talking to us about this and nobody's shown us this. And I would know because I handle some of the biggest investments in Australia and I get pitched on everything. Absolutely no one's talking to us about this. And these results are staggering because our advisors are saying, let's be really risky and get you a 12% return. You're saying (laughs) 112%? This can't be possible. And so we share our research with them. They, They do their due diligence. They look at it and they go, holy crap, why hasn't anybody told us this? And I can't believe that nobody's done it. And so you know what people say to us? They come to us and they say, why are you telling people this? Keep it secret. Set up a fund (laughs) to become a millionaire. And we're like, but that's not our purpose. This is a purpose-led organization where we want people to make massive profits, take care of their family, and then do good works in the world. This is a purpose-led organization. Yes, we could go and take those profits, but that's not our purpose. And they just don't get it. And I get these calls all the time. What are you guys doing? Don't tell anyone. <laughs> like, holy cow. You just, you don't understand. You just don't get it. That's Thank hilarious. You, that's uh, <laughs> very enlightening. I think it's uh, definitely something that's come to mind for me looking at the property side uh, more and more is the, the work from home sort of shift, the remote working. Um, you know, there's always been companies like Freelancer and Up Upwork for the last few years where, you know, people would outsource a little bit of their business. But I think this is just going to dramatically bring that forward. And, um, you know, if you've got a property, you've got to really kind of understand how would, if this shift does happen on mass, how would your property perform? Is it still as desirable? Um, you know, can they build more of them in the areas you're thinking about investing? So, it's just something that people need to really kind of start to understand more and more because it will start to impact property values, I believe. It's already starting to happen. It's just most yeah. people can't, they don't connect the dots. I mean, just ask yourself, if this happens, what does that mean? And then what does that mean? Second mm-hmm. second layer, you know, uh, analysis. This is something that we do as futurists. What does that mean? What does that mean? And that's when you really understand something. And we can see it right now. If you say, if everybody's working from home, what does that mean? <laughs> it means that some of them are going to continue working from home. And what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. That's been fantastic, Craig. I've been dying to get a futurist on. So, and uh, certainly the uh, COVID opportunity, as we might decide to call it, um, gives us the gives us truly the opportunity to discuss these things and consider how you know how our world is going to be shaped and how it is already being shaped. So, thank you very much for your time and for your insights. You're very welcome. And anytime, how about you bring me back in six months' time and we see where we were and where we've come to. It's a date. <laughs> All right. More, more there. You'll be uh, dramatically further, you know, based on your uh, exponential growth. Thank you, Craig. You're very welcome. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... 
Well, let's just pick up on um, Craig's Dumbo, actually, because uh, he was saying that he bought a property in California two weeks before the GFC hit. Now, that's a pretty woeful time to buy property in America, as we all knew that, you know, everything fell off a cliff. So, you know, we talk about it, we've spoken about it on the podcast about the disposition effect and uh, loss aversion to um, behavioural biases that lead us to hold on to property or anything, it could be any uh, investment, that is not performing because we wait until it actually performs or d- it delivers a profit, shall we say, before we sell it. And he said that I wasn't going to sell it at a loss. Now, he obviously in the light of the fact that his loss would have been too great, I guess, to sell, he, he might have been forced to hold on to it, as a lot of people in mining towns are. You know, their debt that they owe the bank is so much more than the property is actually worth that they can't actually afford to get out of it. And, and we talked about, um, I think it was a mortgage prison, I think the debt prison that uh, Martin North uh, talks about, and that's that's a good example of that. So I guess I wanted to talk about the difference between when you might have to keep an asset that you've mistakenly bought versus where you should actually cut your losses and get out and sell that asset because in reality you're missing out on opportunity. And if you think about in in Craig's case, and of course we don't know the numbers around his borrowing and et cetera, et cetera, but if you think about what property in Australia did over that same period of time versus what it did in America, he's just regained his losses um, versus, you know, pulling money out of that and, and investing in in Australia, as one example, it's not necessarily that I'm saying that he should have done that, but I'm just wanting to talk about the fact that sometimes you can get trapped in a property and that's why we have to be very, very careful before we buy a property because we recognise the risks associated with it and other times we're we're holding a low-performing asset or a poor-performing asset or even a losing asset and holding it, the longer we hold it, our situation gets worse because we could cut our losses get out of that and actually reinvest somewhere that's going to grow and be a hell of a lot better off than by waiting until it finally gives us back what we paid for it in the first place. Please join us for our next episode when we're having a bit of a millennial feature. We want to understand what are the real challenges facing millennials with getting onto the property ladder. We bust a few myths. We talk about some sexy stuff and some not so sexy stuff such as spending plans, but it's all really relevant to buying your first property. We're joined by Glenn James. He's the co-host of the My Millennial Money podcast. And given that I'm Jan Xer, we do have a little bit of a stash as to whether there really is that bigger difference between the generations or not. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.